All right, well, welcome everyone. I'm glad you're here. You can grab your Bibles and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be picking up in our series through 1 Timothy. We're coming to an important passage in this letter written by the Apostle Paul, given to Timothy. Timothy is, of course, as you know, we've gone over it many times. Timothy is told to stay in Ephesus and to care for this church. His church needs help. And so Timothy is called to remain there. He's called to deal with some of the issues. And he's been dealing with the issues. And he's been working through certain topics to address, dealing with false teachers, making sure he understands the value of corporate prayer. Uh, Thank you, Kent, for leading us in corporate prayer, an opportunity for us to address so many issues in our world together and actually come to the Father who loves to answer the prayers of His children. What a privilege. Now, thank you for that. And that's why uh, we do that is because chapter 2 commands us to, as a church, to come to the Lord in prayer. That was something that he needed to address. He got to chapter 2, verse 8, and he began to address some of the women in the church that were out of line. And so he needed to talk about gender roles. So prayer, gender roles, And now we're going to come to chapter 3 in Timothy, and he's going to start to address the topic of leadership in the church. This is an important passage for us, kind of even as we think about our unique uh, situation as a church. You guys, many of you know, I think most of you, maybe all of you know this already, that we are a part uh, of, all of us are part of uh, what we have been calling a church revitalization. And what that is, is three different churches kind of all coming together for the purpose of glorifying God first and foremost, but then for the purpose of having this church be built up to a viable, self-sustaining, even outreaching uh, community of believers that glorifies God and has an impact on the people around us in our community. Um, It's been a privilege, but we've been at it for really less than a year. It's amazing what the Lord has done, right, in the last uh, even less than a year, last month that we've been out here doing all this together. Um, but part of our desire working through First Timothy, my desire, uh, one, was to learn the, what Paul had to say to this young guy, Timothy, and how to help a church, but also for us to learn together as a new kind of growing together church what the Apostle Paul had for the early church and specifically Timothy in that situation and how we can learn from that and apply it to our own day, our own church. Uh, so in our situation, all these things are so valuable because we're, we're thinking together, okay, what does it mean for all of us to be a church together, to be united, to be working for the gospel, to structure this place as biblically as we know how? And so we're looking at the text, we're making application, and now we come to a section on leadership in the church. Now you know, if you've been here also, that uh, as a part of this thing, that we've been doing is that the church in Simi Valley sent a team out and they appointed me to be the the pastor here and the church that was here previously appointed me to be a pastor, elder, overseer, you claim the term, we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, to to lead here. Uh, The church in Orange sent Michael and Taylor out here to be a pastoral assistant to help kind of run things and do a lot of the work uh, that you don't even know that happens behind the scenes. And one of the things we don't have that you would normally find in a more established church is what the, what's often called a plurality of elders. 
most churches you go to, uh, you'll, you'll walk in and you'll get to know the people and you'll, you'll hear something about the elders, perhaps, the pastors. It's because normally the churches that are being established as they grow and reach a kind of a, a maturity, they are appointed elders. Elders begin to exercise oversight in the church, and this is the way God intended it. And we'll get to this in the future, not this morning, but that the Lord intends over His church a plurality of men to be leading, exercising oversight, teaching the people, and that's the way God has designed our church. Now, we're in a unique situation where in the process of all of this coming together, there's one pastor. That's me. Now, I understand that God's design is for a plurality, a group of men to lead. And so this is great because as we work through this text, my desire is that all of us together would have a biblical picture of what leadership in the church should look like. I pray that we would begin to identify what this is, that we would see it, Perhaps even some of us would go, I would love to be this way and serve this way. And even if that's not you, that we would all be better equipped to say, hey, this is what a godly leader in the church looks like. And we could identify it. Because we all have a role in identifying the next leaders. We all have a role in raising up the next generation of pastors, elders. We all have a part to play in that. And so we come to this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about overseers. I'm going to read the text. You follow along with me. I'm going to read all seven verses that are relating to overseers, and then we're actually only going to camp in verse one. (laughs) So let's read the, the whole little section here, starting in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, looking at this passage, I kind of want to start in verse 1 and use that as a doorway into the whole topic of biblical church leadership. Uh, This first verse will kind of be our starting point, and then we'll back up and we'll get a big picture. Next week, we'll break away from it because Mark Severance will be taking the pulpit and preaching from a different passage, and then we'll get back to finish this by going through each of the qualifications in a more, with a more closer eye to look at each one of them. But this morning, I want to look at church leadership from a biblical standpoint, and I want to look at the urgency of church leadership, the source of church leadership, the titles of church leadership, the work of church leadership, and the heart of church leadership. I hope you wrote all that down. Just kidding. You'll have time later on to write it down. But let's start with the very beginning. Let's look at the urgency of church leadership. He begins with this statement Paul does, writing to Timothy, how to make sure the church is being organized rightly. He begins with the saying, he says, the saying is trustworthy. 
It's, a, it's something he's saying before he even gets into the qualifications, and that statement is used frequently throughout the pastoral epistles. It's something Paul would use every once in a while. It's not all throughout Paul's letters, but specifically in the pastoral epistles, that's First, Second Timothy, and that's Titus, he would say something that would prepare his readers for an emphasis, for something that's really important, for something that's foundational. For example, in the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is a saying that's trustworthy, it's deserving of full acceptance, and then he goes on to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what was uh, probably true of this is that there were sayings in the early church around this time when Paul was writing that there would, these sayings would get passed around kind of orally. They were generally accepted sayings that one person would say to another and one pastor would tell his church and that pastor would share it. And they kind of became these little sayings that were familiar like a proverb almost. And you would say, if you were about to say something important, you could say, hey, this saying is trustworthy. And then you'd say that saying, this, this proverbial, important, foundational saying. And what he does here is he uses this to kind of function like an exclamation point, but it's coming at the beginning of the sermon, or sorry, beginning of the statement. Uh, He's saying, listen up. This is a trustworthy statement. Hear this. I'm putting this in bold or italics, or I'm going to underline it or something. I want you to see that this is really urgent that you hear me here. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he will go in to describe the qualifications of church leadership. In other words, he wants to put a big, bold letter right here that we see that we can't get past this section without noticing Paul wants us to know church leadership is important. This is an urgent thing that the church must know the qualifications for leaders. And if you've been listening to the series on Timothy, you would know that the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring, is kind of a mess, right? A lot of bad teaching going on. A lot of greed with the elders, uh, money-grubbing type stuff where they want to get stuff for themselves. They're not caring for the people. They're using the people. They want to be setting themselves up as teachers of the law, though Paul says they have no idea what they're talking about in verse 1. And so this isn't a healthy church. And so when it's coming to correcting it, you got to pray. He mentioned that already. you got to make sure you understand gender roles and who's supposed to do what. But now you got to understand what leaders are actually meant to look like. What is a biblical leader? This is an urgent topic that we all have to understand. I think it's always been urgent. You can look around in our day and you say, man, yes, this is urgent. We need to have biblical leadership, right? Too often we see in the world around us unbiblical, unqualified leadership. It's always been something that God desires in His church and with His people that they would be led by biblical leaders. In fact, some passages in the Old Testament picture God like He's searching for leaders, like He's looking out over the whole world, looking for someone who would stand out from the crowd, someone who would stand up for truth. This was the case in the uh, the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul disqualifies himself, the Bible uses the language of searching and seeking. God sought out David to replace Saul. 
It's like God is looking, who's going to be the one to take the mantle of leadership? Who, who's going to rise to the occasion? Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, God is like someone who's telling the people, hey, look around, who's going to be the person who steps up? It says this, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, who, one who does justice and seeks truth that I might pardon, that I might pardon Jerusalem. It's as if if there were just one person who would step up for justice and step up for truth, if there's just one person in the city of Jerusalem, God would seek to pardon Jerusalem, but he can't find a single leader to step away from the crowd to stand for truth. The nation was so depraved at that point. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, the same kind of imagery is God looking, God searching is, is given to us. God says, I sought a man. I sought for a man from among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before the me before the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Again, the image. God seeking someone to rise up, some person to stand in the gap, some person to lead the people, and there's no one there. I've never heard of uh, uh, an organization in the world, let alone an organization of the church, that's saying, man, we just got too many leaders. (laughs) Don't know what to do with them. Too many godly, qualified leaders, and they're just all trying to serve. They're all trying to disciple other people. There's just too many of them. Can you take some off our hands? Never heard of that situation. We're always in need of leaders. We're always in need of people to rise up, to stand for the truth, to stand for biblical principles, to be principled people. Uh, And we've also, I'm sure, seen the carnage of unbiblical leadership, unqualified leaders, Bad leadership. Maybe you've been in churches that way. Maybe you've been in a workplace where the leadership was bad and the pain it can cause to the people underneath that bad leader. Now, poor leaders in the world, I suppose, is tolerable. It can be a trial if that's you and you're functioning under that poor leadership. But bad leadership in the church is a tragedy. Bad leadership in the church doesn't only affect the leader because those who teach will be judged more strictly and those who are meant to be given an example as leaders are going to be judged more strictly. It's not only bad for them to be a bad leader, but it's bad for the whole group of people who are under their leadership, isn't it? It's sad. Sometimes we've seen it in the world and in the church. People who are not qualified that step into the office, they're unbiblical leaders, and they lead their people astray, or they lead, let their people down, or they fall morally. And there's all kinds of tragedies that happen. And the reality is that when a person who's not associated with any kind of leadership role, if they make a mistake, the, 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 the number of people it might hurt, it might be minimal. But when a leader up front and someone who's meant to be leading a group of people, when they fall or when they go astray and they take people with them, the results are painful. They're broad. There's lots of hurt and pain as a result of bad or unhealthy or unbiblical or unqualified leadership. 
Uh, this is brought up in, in the chapter, the fourth chapter of this letter. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he's counseling him, you got to watch yourself. You got to watch your own soul. You got to practice all these things I'm telling you. In chapter 4, verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all might see your progress. Look at this, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, Timothy, hey, if you don't watch your own heart, if you don't watch your own soul, you're not only going to disqualify yourself and crash and burn, you, there are eternal souls on the line. You persist in doing this work you're called to do. You'll save yourself and your hearers. You give up on this. You fail to do this. It won't only hurt you. It'll hurt everyone you're trying to lead. It's a tragedy in the church when people who are not qualified for the office assume it. They're not qualified to lead and they try to lead. And so we see the carnage in the Bible. This is why Timothy is being written a letter by the apostle because he's got to address it. He's got to address bad leadership in the church. Sometimes, sadly, not, a, a Christian might not even know what biblical leadership even looks like. Uh, maybe some Christians have grown up in places where there wasn't a biblical leader in the home. And they went to a church where they never really got to see real, authentic, biblical, humble, servant, shepherd leadership. They don't have a category for it. And yet, you read the literature on, on leadership, and everyone knows that this is such an urgent thing. I, I was just perusing some of the, uh, the tables of contents and some of the books I have on church and church government and leadership, and I just listen to this. Everyone knows how urgent a need leadership is in the church. Kenan Callahan's book, 12 Keys to an Effective Church. Key number five, strong leadership resources. Tom Rayner, The Book of Church Growth, 13 Principles for Church Growth. Number two, leadership. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, puts biblical church government, that's leadership, on the signs of a healthy church. Bill Hull's book, Seven Steps to Transform Your Church. Number two, biblical developed, or sorry, developed principled leadership training. Number three, transform existing leadership. Number four, cast the vision, that's a function of leadership. All these books are putting leadership as some of the key vital parts or ingredients for healthy churches. Barna's Seven Habits of Highly Effective Churches. Number one, strategic leadership. The book called The ABCs of Natural Church Development. Number one, empowering leadership. John MacArthur's book, Marks of a Healthy Church, the very first mark. Number one, godly leaders. Without making a comment on the value of all those books, I will simply say, people get this. There's a need for leadership. There's a need in the church. People crave it. We need more leaders. We need more biblical leaders. Unfortunately, the world's definition of leadership is so much different from the biblical definition of leadership that we need to make sure we spend enough time to clarify what the Bible says leadership really is and what are the qualifications for biblical leaders. And so I think when Paul says this saying is trustworthy, we all got to look up, we got to listen, because he's making a very important point Here's what we all need to know to be able to identify who are the leaders God has called for the church. 
And so it's urgent. We can all agree on this, right? This is an urgent need of the church. Let's look at the second. We're going to look at the source of church leadership. We looked at the urgency. I think we can all agree that it's an urgent thing, that we all need uh, to be able to know what leaders are, and we need uh, more of them in our church and among us. Well, what about the source? You might ask, where do these guys come from? Well, what is the source of biblical leadership? And I'm going to start by going back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, where God says something we all know to be true, but He says it very bluntly. He says, Behold, all souls are mine. They're His. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. God holds souls. They're all His. Uh, even the king's heart, the, the proverb writer says, is like water that God is directing His heart. God owns the soul. God guides the heart. God raises up leaders, which is why in Matthew 9, Jesus says, hey, the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Why? So that He will send up workers. He will raise them up and He will send them out. It's really important for us to really get the divine uh, picture here. Uh, the divine uh, factory. Uh, that God is the one forging leaders. God has souls. God shapes hearts. God has gifts that He can give to the church. And that's why we are told to pray because really it is God who provides. All through the book of Acts, as we see the church kind of take off and expand, we see that who's the one raising up leaders? It's the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, verse 2. You could jot that verse down and look at it later. I'll just tell you what it says. It says the church in Antioch, they're all worshiping. And it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Spirit called them. The Spirit picked them out. The Spirit then commissioned them to the work of the ministry. God is raising up leaders. Acts 20, Paul is talking to the elders. He says to them in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, listen to this, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Where, where do these people come from? Listen, true biblical leaders are from the hand of God. They are provided by God. He holds their souls. He shapes their hearts. The Spirit identifies them. The Spirit even, it says, appoints them as leaders in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, speaking of the resurrected Christ, it says, He gave to the church some apostles, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Jesus gives them. They're His to give. And this is the way He blesses the church, isn't it? Anytime you've ever experienced the blessing of a, a good leader, you can thank Jesus for that. Because that's a gift He delights to give to His people. I like what John Newton said. We just sang Amazing Grace. He made a comment about how ministers come to serve in the church. And he said, none but He who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. It is a divine work of God when God gets the hold of a human heart and he begins to shape that person's heart by the Spirit, begins to give them holy desires, holy ambitions to serve Jesus. 
Now, you might be saying, well, what, is this practical at all? Okay, God does this. Do we have any role in this? Do we have any part to play? Are we just going to kind of sit passively and wait for whew, a leader to drop out of the sky and land in our lap? Uh, no. So one of the reasons the Bible has written uh, for us this passage on elders, leaders, overseers in chapter 3 that we've just read is because this text teaches us how to identify them, doesn't it? This text isn't just for other leaders. This is for the whole church. In other words, it's very important for you, even if you never become an elder, never even aspire to it, it is important for you to know who God has called to be the church leaders. It's important for you to know their qualifications. How important is us for to us to know uh, what it means to hold the mantle of leadership in the church? You have a responsibility. God has given the church, all of us together, a responsibility to be able to identify those people God has given to us, to be able to identify them and equip them, train them, and even appoint them to leadership. That's a role that all of us have, and it's a role that we need to take seriously, and it's a role that, by the grace of God, He's given us what we need to know in His Word about what leadership is. So here's, here's maybe the summary of the source. Where do, where do leaders come from? They come from God through the church. From God, forged in heaven, given by Christ as the head of the church. But it is the church's role in response to the grace of God to labor to identify these traits in people and to affirm leaders. That's why we have this text and many others that tell us it is our responsibility. So we know that this is an urgent calling. God wants leaders. God looks for leaders to rise up and lead His people. We know that this is something God gives to His church. That God allows His church to have as He blesses them with His people. Now I want to look at something, uh, and we're going to title this subheading, The Titles of Church leadership because I think it's really important to get our terminology right. I think uh, in, in many places it's really unclear what's a pastor and what's an elder and what's an overseer and what are their roles and are those different and are they the same. I want us to have a good clear terminology on these things because it can be really important. So let's look at our third heading, the titles of church leadership. In the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you have different names, titles, given to church leaders. If you saw in our text here, what was it called? Do you see it, you see it there in verse 1? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and he'll go on to describe overseers. That word there in the Greek is the word episkopos. If you've heard of an Episcopalian church, that's where we get that word, episkopos. In, in, in this idea is the idea of someone who holds an office, a position of oversight. An episkopos was someone even in the Greek world who held an office even in the secular, secular world. They were people, uh, city officials were called episkopos at times. And now Paul borrows that language and begins to use it in the church. An episkopos is someone who is uh, able to provide oversight, someone able to influence, someone able to be watchful, 
an alert, a guardian, a protector, overseer. It was someone connected to the lives of the people, able to see what's going on. They had a pulse on the lives of the people God had given them, and they're interested in watching over their souls. Another word that's used a bunch in the New Testament in Greek is the presbyter. I can't even pronounce it because I don't speak Greek, but I'll try. Presbyteros, and that is where you get the word Presbyterian. And that word, whenever you see the word in the New Testament, elders, elder, that is that Greek word, Presbyteros. And that word has to do more with a man's maturity, a man's experience, a man's wisdom. Now what's interesting about these words, you got overseer, you got elder. What's interesting about these two words is that they are often used interchangeably. So in other words, the Bible doesn't say there are some of the church leaders who should be elders and that there are some that should be overseers and still others that should be pastors. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. In fact, elder, overseer, and we're going to see in a second, pastor are all used interchangeably. You can see this for yourself if you want to. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, it would be a few pages over to your right, another pastoral epistle, uh, where elder and overseer are used interchangeably. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He begins to list the qualifications. And then in verse 7, speaking of the same person, he, or the same qualifications, he says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Elders are overseers. Overseers are elders. In Acts chapter 20, jot this down if you need more proof. In, El, in chapter 20, Paul calls the elders to come gather with them. Come, elders, come gather. I have one last thing I want to say to you. And then as he's talking to them, you know what he calls them? He calls them overseers. Uh, they're interchangeable. They have different nuances in what they mean about what the role of a leader is, but they're referring to the same office. Now what's interesting, in Acts 20, verse 28, when he's talking to these elders slash overseers, he says something interesting. He says, pay attention, um, or pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he says, to care. And the Greek word for care is literally to shepherd. Shepherd, which is where we get the idea of pastor. To pastor the church of God, it could be translated. To care, to shepherd the church of God. And so what we are seeing here is that elders are overseers, overseers are elders, and what do elders slash overseers do? They pastor. Okay? So all these words that we use, sometimes we have different ideas. I might say pastor and something comes to your mind. And I might say elder and something different comes to your mind. I might say overseer and something totally weird comes to your mind. Listen, in the Bible, those are all the same. You want more evidence, you could look at chapter 5 of 1 Peter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Listen to this. I exhort you elders, and then he says in verse 2, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. All three ideas right there in the same little section. Elders are shepherding, they're overseeing. Elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor, all the same. One office, one position, one leadership position in the church. We'll see at the next part of First Timothy that God has given the church another office called deacon. 
But in terms of elder, pastor, overseer, those are all the same thing. Deacon is a different thing, but those are all the same thing. You say, okay, Eric, enough of your nerdy word studies. What does this have to do with us? Well, we all need to nerd out every once in a while. And here's why this is important. It is important to clarify what the work of an elder really is. Because we sometimes think that the pastor is the all-in one, the pastor is the one who is really devoted to the church, and the elders are like his henchmen. The elders are the ones that kind of, they're, they're, they're willing to help, they're willing to come in and chip in, they'll even bear some of the load of the teaching ministry and others, but sometimes in our mind, they're just two different things. They're just not on the same level. But what we want to hold up high in our church and make sure we all understand is that if if one is called to be an elder, they are called to be a pastor. To want to be an elder is to want to be a pastor of the church. To want to be a pastor is to function like an elder. Now, that doesn't mean they will all preach in the same way because 1 Timothy 5.17 indicates that there are some elders that will labor in preaching and teaching. So there is some, they divide up the labor, some will function more as preaching, teaching elders, but some will not, but they will still be fully committed to shepherding the church, caring for the church, watching over the church. I don't ever want to communicate that elders and pastors are different or that elders are somehow inferior or less committed than the pastor is. Our church must understand this reality that all pastors are elders and all elders are pastors and that God intends the church to be led, cared for, the biblical word shepherded by a team of elders slash pastors slash overseers who care for the church of God. Uh, One of the classic books on this issue is a book by Alexander Strauch. He wrote a book called Biblical Eldership. If you ever are thinking that you would like to be an elder someday or you would like to pastor the church in this way, I would just recommend that book to you. Even if you would just like to grow in your understanding of the ministry of pastors, that would be an excellent book to read. But one of the stories he tells in this book is, it illustrates the point that I'm making. And he, he said one time he's walking into a church. It was not his home church. He was there on, for a conference. And he walked in and There right on the wall, prominently displayed, was this big picture of the lead pastor. And and underneath him, three other pictures, like a pyramid, three other pictures of the staff, associate pastors, underneath him. And Alexander Strauch, he says, he walked in, he's like, oh, okay, there's there's the pastor and, and there's the pastors of the church. But he walked down the hall a little bit further and he found another wall with another grouping of pictures on the wall and over kind of off to the side was these pictures of these other men that were called elders. And they were totally different places indicating totally different offices and totally different roles. And he uses that to say what an illustration of how we usually view pastors and elders. 
that the pastors are the ones we're going to put on prominent display. They're the ones shouldering the load. And the others are the elders. They're a separate thing. They'll put them somewhere else. They're not as well known. They're the ones kind of behind the scenes. But they have a different calling, a different role than the pastors do. And I want us to say, no, no, no. All of those things are the same. So the Bible tells us that church leaders are elders. That means they've got maturity. They've got wisdom. They've got experience. They're overseers. That means they're competent. That means they're compassionate. That means they're people loving. That means they want to connect themselves with others and care for the church of God. They're shepherds. That means they're among the people. That means they're listeners. That means they're invested. That means they're watching them. And they're guarding them. And they're leading them. So we've got to get the titles right just so he makes sure we're all on the same page. But let's look to the, the fourth heading that we're looking at. Now let's look at the work. Okay, what do these guys do? What is their responsibility? Okay, we got their titles, but what's their task? We see here in the verse that we're looking at, in chapter 3, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Noble task. There's, a, there's work to be done here. And I want to give kind of three words that kind of help us understand what these elders, overseers, pastors are called to do. First of all, it's modeling work, not runway modeling, lest you be confused. What I'm saying here is that the pastors, elders, overseers are called to example to their church what Christianity looks like. Uh, you probably heard the saying, more is caught than taught. And if you have kids, you certainly know that to be true. Already Jack, when he grabs one of our phones, will hold it, put, put it sideways, and hold it up like he's taking a selfie. And I go, where did he learn that from? I mean, certainly not me. But he's learning by watching. He's picking up things. And this is true even to grown-up Age, as, as long as we live together, we are always able to be influenced by people around us. And God calls the leaders of His church to set the example. If ever there was a person who's unfamiliar with Christianity, maybe they're new to the church, new to the faith, and they were to walk in, and they're really trying to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus, what we should be able to do, biblically speaking, is to say, hey, look at the elders. Go watch their life. That's the godly man's portrait right there. Go look at the life of the leaders. That's one of the reasons why one of the qualifications for a biblical elder is that they're hospitable. They, they welcome people in their homes. Why? So that you could see how they live with their wife and with their children, how they manage their house, how they, they love their family, how they're generous and welcoming. Because People need to see how they live. So the first call in an elder's life, is an overseer's life, is that they live purely with these character qualifications we're going to get into soon. They model the Christian life. So they're, they're, they're an example to the flock. Secondly, it's overseeing work. Uh, it's overseeing. There's oversight. There's, there's this idea that the shepherd, teacher, elder, pastor needs to be watchful. They need to be alert. They need to be like guardians and protectors for their flock. These are people who are good listeners. They know what's going on in the lives of their people. They know where their pe what their people need. They know how to lead them along. They're competent counselors with the Word of God. 
This is why they all must be able to teach because part of overseeing someone's soul is being able to give the right remedy when there's spiritual sickness. That is, being able to give them the Word of God as they need it. There's, there's, there's a competency level here. See, in all biblical leadership, character is the foundation. There must be character. Character is king, but in leadership, there's more than character that's required as well. There's a certain measure of competency in leadership. There's a certain measure of the ability to oversee, to provide direction, to provide care. They must be able to look at the whole flock and understand what people need and what direction the church needs to go. This is what overseeing is. Um, I'm going to throw out now my token Spurgeon quote for the morning. Uh, When he started up his pastor's college, uh, he, he was training up men. And often men would come to him wanting to get into the college because they were thinking maybe they were called to ministry. And he writes, I've met 10, 20, 100 brethren who have pleaded that they were quite sure that they were called into the ministry because they had failed at everything else. Isn't that the case? So you fail at doing this, you fail at doing that, and so you figure, well, I must be called to be a pastor. And he goes, that is not the case, because if you can't do anything else, you're probably not competent to lead the church. This is what his, his, he was saying to the people. Hey, you could be a godly person, but there's a measure of competency that goes into overseeing the body of believers. Certainly, character is foundational, but there needs to be something built on the foundation. Ability to provide leadership and oversight and care. So it's overseeing work. It's modeling work. But third, it's teaching work. And this is fundamental, guys. Fundamental to the calling of an elder is the ministry of the Word of God. You might remember in Acts chapter 6, hey, we, need to, we got these issues. We need to keep laboring and preaching the Word and in prayer. So we need people to come up and help us so we don't get distracted from that primary call. We must preach. We must pray. We must preserve the doctrines of the Gospel given down to us. See, the primary calling of an elder in the body of elders is to be able to know the Word of God, to bleed Bible. They are to wield the sword of the Spirit with proficiency, with effectiveness. And so that when there's error encroaching on the church, they can identify it and squash it and eliminate it. And they need to be able to understand how the church is built up. And that is by the teaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel. So if we are to have here what we talk about often, a long-term gospel ministry where our children and great-grandchildren are still sitting under the preaching of the gospel, we must have men in leadership who understand that their primary responsibility is to preserve the sound words that have been handed down from Christ to the apostles through the ages now to us this very day. We need to guard it, protect it, and proclaim it. This is a good time for us to just clarify this good news, right? God, creator of all things and all men and all women, who loves His creation, who has blessed us in this world with so many things, and humanity, though we have been so loved by God, has turned away from God in sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? Every one of us, we know this to be true. And yet God, even though we were sinners, even though He would be good and right to punish us justly for our sin, 
out of love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die for the sins that we committed and then to rise victorious over death and over sin, conquering Satan. And now, as a living and risen Savior, he offers free salvation to anyone who would repent and believe. Now, you who have believed that, you are forgiven. And you are filled with the Spirit, and now you are called to live a life to the glory of God. And what our role as a church, and what the elders are to lead the way in, is preserving that precious truth. If you have been saved, the gospel is precious to you, isn't it? You love to sing it. You love to talk about it. You don't mind hearing it again and again. You'll read about it as you read in the Scriptures and as you read good books that present Christ as the only way, you want that preserved. And so do I and, and so do we. And what the elders are called to do is to be the primary guardians, to make sure that this precious gospel never gets mixed up with error, never gets compromised, so that our kids and grand, great-grandkids and those who come in from among us from the, from the community are still hearing the gospel. And so what are the elders, pastors, overseers called to do? They're called to model it with their life. They're called to oversee the flock. They're called to teach the Word, to protect the truth. In all of this, Paul is saying, is a noble task. It's good work. It's fine. It's honorable. It is a big responsibility. Now, just to be clear, this is not about grabbing power and control. And the person who wants to be an elder or pastor who is doing it because they want to grab control, because it feeds their ego, that person should not lead. What eldering is, what pastoring is, is a willingness to shoulder a load, to take on the burdens of souls, to carry them to Jesus on a regular basis, to say, I am committing to you my whole life. I remember reading about officers in the military that would wear their rankings on their shoulders while the soldiers would wear their rankings on their arms. And the reason for that is because the officer, to symbolize the weight of his load that he carries on his shoulders, puts his rank on his shoulders. It is not a privilege that he seeks. It is not a power grab. It is the assumption of the weight of other people's souls, of the weight of teaching the Word of God, of the, the weight of living an exemplary life. It is not about usurping authority for your own gain. And any time the church has leaders who are trying to grab authority for their own ego, that church is the beginning of death. And so whenever we think about church leadership, it is not something to be glibly considered. You don't approach this in a cavalier sort of way. The burden is big. The load is huge. And it can only be borne by shoulders that are upheld by supernatural strength. And so we get to the fifth mark of a leader or the fifth heading here of our talk about church leadership, and in here we're going to look at the heart, the heart of church leadership, where Paul says, if anyone aspires, 
if anyone aspires, the, the Greek word has the idea of their, their soul being stretched towards something like an inward compulsion, an inward desire. It's almost as if you can't help it. The aspiration is welling up within you and there's this desire to do the work. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And let me just say the very first and fundamental qualification for any leader is that he must desire it. You must want it. You can't coerce someone to want this. If they do take on the load of leadership without a heart that wants it, it's going to be disaster for them and potentially disaster for the church. See, see, this is what the elder is. He's a man broken. His pride is broken. He stands before his holy God understanding his lowliness. He understands his great need of a Savior. But at the same time, he knows his Gospel. He knows his Savior. And he has tasted the grace of God. And having tasted the grace of God, he says, Lord, I will do anything you call me to do. And if that means I shoulder the burdens of other men's souls and other women's souls and I bring them to You and I guide them to You and I bring them in my prayers before You, if You call me to that, let it be so, I will bear the load. If You call me to lead and to guide and to suffer with them, to share their burdens like my Savior did, Lord, give me the task. They don't stomp into this role proud, thinking that in and of themselves they can do it because of their natural ability. They are like Paul and they say, who is sufficient for these things? Who can do such a work? They feel like they're worms that God has raised up to move mountains. And so there's a deep humility, but at the same time, they're like, wow, Lord, you could do this through me? And so they say, yes, I'll do it. I desire it. Sign me up. Now let me just say, to be clear, not everyone can or should be elders. Let me just also say, if you don't desire the work of being a pastor or elder, it's not a sin. Not everyone has that desire. Praise the Lord. We want also all in, ready to live and serve and die for Christ if necessary, non-elders. We want those people filling our church as well. May the Lord raise up many people all in who say, no, that's really not for me. That's okay. I'm going to pray for the leaders. I'm going to pray for them to be raised up. And I'm even going to help raise them up. But that's not, not me. We pray for many of those. But as Spurgeon says, the first sign of a heavenly calling is an intense all-absorbing desire for the work. It is an irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst. They've got to aspire it. They've got to desire it. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 says the same thing, that they've got to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Can't be forced into it, but willingly. They've got to want it. Eagerly, another word Peter uses. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Listen, listen to this. Let them do so with joy. Let the leaders lead with joy. Enthusiasm, passion, gladness. They are thrilled to do the work. And then he says, let them do so with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
a grumpy pastor, <laughs> an Eeyore type of elder, that's not going to be good for the church. See, the, the, the call of the, on the elder, pastor, overseer is that there's this desire, not because they feel in themselves they are competent, but because God in his sovereignty has guided their hearts to give them this joy, this eagerness, this passion, this conviction that someone needs to do it and I want to be the one. I want to, I want to do it. This is essential for church leadership, passion, joy, gladness, eagerness, willingness. Al Mohler says, the most faithful and effective pastors are those who are driven by a deep, deep and energizing convictions. With eternity hanging in the balance, they know what to do. They see every neighborhood as a mission field, and every individual is someone who needs to hear the gospel. They cannot wait till Sunday comes. They're eager. They're willing. There's a joy that turns into eagerness, that turns into, com that turns into passion, that turns into conviction. And so they give themselves wholly to the work of shepherding the flock of God. Okay, so what's the point of all this? Let's wrap it up. Our ch desire, church, is that God is glorified. Amen? That's what we desire more than anything else. And we want God to be glorified as the church and the gospel that we proclaim reaches more people. And by the grace of God, more people are saved. And as those people are saved, they're brought into the church. And as they're brought into the church, we have people to raise them up and care for them and shepherd them and lead them. We pray that God would give us the types of shepherds that the Bible describes who would be willing to give their lives in service to the King of Kings and in service to to the church of God that he purchased with his own blood. This is our desire, to see this happening among us. So I'll say, if you are a man who aspires to this work, the work of pastoring, eldering, overseeing in the church, shepherding the flock of God, let me say what Samuel Brengel said many years ago. If you desire this, it's not won by promotion. It's not won by promotion but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by a confession of sin and by much heart-searching and humbling before God, by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncomplaining embrace of the cross, and by an eternal, unfaltering looking to Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as loss for Christ. This is a great price, but it must be paid by the leader who would not merely be recognized as a nominal leader, but as a real spiritual leader of men. A leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And so I ask you as a church to be praying for this. We will be praying for this. I ask you to pray for it in your own devotions. I ask you to pray for it with your family. I ask that you would even pray what you would need to do in your own heart to help raise these people up among us. Let's pray now. Lord, to consider the work of pastoral ministry 
is to feel woefully inadequate. It is to make me all the more dependent on divine enabling and grace. But I thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And for that which you call us, you equip us. And Lord, we pray now for our church family. We pray that you would be stirring in our hearts so that we would understand the great need of biblical leadership. Some of us would even begin to desire it. Many of us would begin to be praying for it. And that you, like a good father, would give good gifts to your church by providing for us laborers, workers for the harvest to go out and reach those who don't yet know you. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We trust you will answer them. In Jesus' name, amen.